Hey, Matt. Dave. How are you? How was your Freud? It was great. It was great. Wait, first tell me about the- Did a cameo. Yeah, I did a cameo as well, and we missed each other, but I want to hear about your Saturday night gig. Okay. I don't know if I had mentioned this on mic. You did. Did I? Yeah. For For those who perhaps did not hear it. Um, I DJed a, a boarding school reunion in Carpinteria, California last week. Uh, a friend of mine from my high school, uh, his wife went to this school. And so it was her, I guess it was going to be her 30th reunion. Mm-hmm. There's going to be a big showing from her class. And she was like, Hey, would you mind coming yeah. up and DJing? And I said, why not? So I said, yes. I immediately learned how to DJ. Uh, I downloaded DJ pro Oh, so you didn't Onto just throw a, a, a playlist together? No, no, oh. no. Oh no, I spun, my friend. Okay, w- explain. Okay, there, well, there's a there's an app called DJ Pro that you can put it on your laptop, and it connects with the music you have. Or if there's Wi-Fi, it'll connect to Spotify. Or this Apple is not music. an ad. So no, it's not. Although if they wanna if they wanna sponsor us, I'm I'm listening. Yep. Um, and then you just it's like there's two turntables on your laptop, and you have access. If you if you have Wi-Fi, you have access to everything. Oh. Right? So just to be safe, I was like, I better download like the 400 most basic songs I can think of. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. Just yeah. so I'm not stuck when I get up there. Uh-huh. You know, and like anyway, how basic. Are we t- are we talking YMCA and no no not quite no. that basic okay. not quite that big basic but um, you know take on me come on Eileen great I want to dance with somebody who loves me great uh, things of that nature mm-hmm. you know mm-hmm. bangers mm-hmm. Uh, first of all got up there and it's beautiful like it is like Santa Barbara winery settings but a school mm. right and uh, small school real progressive right like really funky. You know, California boarding. So it's not like one of these snooty, like East Coast ones. Mm-hmm. It's California. So they're, you know, big on the environment and they're big on, you know, gender expression. And it's like a groovy, progressive place to be. Even the people who are the, the alums yeah. that, are, yeah. that are attending this. I event. mean, they have the spooky self reliance and self possession of someone who's been on their own since they were 14. Right. All of them, like yeah. just crazy, confident people. Also beautiful. Because it's in this beautiful environment and you're urged to go outside and hike. So like- Everyone's every, sun-kissed and yes, strong. Gorgeous. Uh, the fr- I wore these pants. I'm wearing some plaid pants from JCRT, which I bought off of Instagram. Cute. They also are not a sponsor, but if they want to sponsor us and pay us in pants, I'm listening. <laughs> um, I was wearing these. Uh, and the first person to come up and say, hey, I like your pants, I just, a total stranger, struck up a conversation with. This woman uh, runs an LGBT- um, Community space and sex club in Portland, Oregon. Wow. Yeah. She says, it's like a community center, but with lube and wipes. And I was like, what? what? Okay, what does that terrific. Mean? You're my best friend now. It's a place where you can just get, I mean, it's a sex club, basically. But then they also have like talks and screenings. And they're doing a thing later this month celebrating Brittany Murphy and Clueless as a soft butch icon. Wow. Like that, that kind of thing. So it's like you, go, you watch a film, you discuss- the and dream then, is alive in Portland. Fuck. Yes, it's true. Absolutely. So I immediately made a friend, and then and then I the fir- and then I learned something very important about DJing a thing of this kind, which is that it is a hundred percent about making the women in their forties dance. Right. That's your audience. So keep them happy. Just mm-hmm. keep them happy. Thirty and under, they're not going to dance. You know, fifty right. and up, they're not going to dance. But that thirty to fifty, Sweet it's going to be ninety percent women. You just got to keep them happy. And how do you do that? 
you, j- you keep that fucking you keep it you keep it recognizable. Uh-huh. You keep it danceable. Yeah. You um I somebody requested actually early I, we don't have to take our clothes off. In the email was like that's the kind of song you should be playing. It was like great. So I started playing it. Didn't get to the chorus quick enough. I got booed. Had to fade it off, fade booed? it down. Not booed, but just like, you know, got the thumbs down. You got from some, some feedback. Yeah, from some some Lisas and Courtney's in the audience <laughs> in the, on the dance floor. So, um, oh, the, 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 the sort of downbeat intro to I'm Every Woman nearly got me killed. What? Because you got it. I thought you these it. would be no-brainers. However, everything else, like just the most basic shit yeah. made people so happy. And I, I, that, sounds, that sounds cutting. And yeah. I guess it is, but it's all right. It, um, I was some of the younger, more entitled millennials. Um, one young gay guy was like, um, "Could we do something from like the century?" And I was like, "Sure, tell me what." And he goes, "I don't know. Teach me how to dougie." And I was like, what? "Fine, you know what? Great, I'll play. Teach me how to dougie." I play it. It's like the, a bomb went off on the dance floor. Everybody left. <laughs> so I was like, "Well, okay, fine. You don't you don't get your way anymore." Right. Um, I think I th- might have thrown in some uh, some usher. But other than that, pure 80s. I would have been out there on that dance floor. Would you? Oh, 100%. I appreciate that. I am a basic woman in her 40s. Great. Spiritually. Um, I I also noticed that the ups and downs, the ebbs and flows of a dance floor over the course of a night. I was was supposed to play one hour. I played five, right? Five? Because it was just fun, right? I was kind of starting to enjoy myself. I had a little co-pilot, a woman from the class of 89 who I think needed a little breather, so she Mm -hmm. stuck by me and we... Um, we, you know, we, we debated what we would play. Um, I, uh, it's when, when people like swarm to the dance floor, you feel good. You feel yeah, like you've yeah. done something. When they leave, you feel like you've done something bad. Right. It's, it, it takes a strong ego, I think. Well, you're getting direct kind of audience feedback. It's exactly. like being a stand up comedian and the I, laughs are the, is the dancing. That's exactly right. That's exactly right. It was, it was a weird night. It was a really weird night, but I really loved it. Could this be a new chapter in your life? I will say this: I would like to DJ some more. Um, I did some. I did some rough needle drops. I will tell you that I did some rough transitions, and I'd like a chance to smooth that out. And I'd also like to play stuff that I love. Yeah, you know what I mean. Right. I was real. I was dying to throw some stuff in there that was perhaps a bit edgy for the, you know, sure, 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 for the Kate School crowd. But what a great place to find your your sea legs. What a place to learn. It's uh, a school. It is a place of learning. Well, if anybody in the LA area wants Dave Holmes to come and DJ mm-hmm. your party, um, and for me to dance like a basic forty-five-year-old uh, housewife, yeah, hit us up. Listen, it's on the table. It's on the table. We do need to throw a party for our hundredth episode. It is coming. It is coming. It, like it just in the matter of a couple weeks, I think. Yeah. Um, so it'll be for the hundredth episode, but it might be around the time of the hundred and sixth. But. Whatever. Close enough. Whatever happens, happens. How are you? How was your pride? Uh, it was pretty uneventful. I did um, I did also a cameo. We missed each other. So you mm-hmm. went to pride at an, on Sunday, I'm assuming, at an appropriate time where you would see some of the parade. I drove back and I went right to the wing. The wing? Yeah, the ladies club. The wing. Uh, it's a new it's a new women's club in West Hollywood. It's like a Soho house for women. Ah, and my friend Irene White just became a member. She's like she loves it, and they let her bring a couple guests. And there's a balcony that overlooks the parade route, so we went right there. Great, perfect. I I showed up at about three thirty p.m. So uh-huh. this is like the 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 city and the people and the streets are in shambles. Absolutely, everybody is just 
burnt yes. like physically and emotionally mm-hmm. it's a, it's the, the 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 streets are destroyed there's Absolutely trash everywhere yeah. trash of all sorts yes and uh and i just ran around uh with my friend mike nice and we reminisced about um when we used to take you know santa monica and robertson by storm mm-hmm. every weekend and uh i did that for like an hour and then michael and i went to see first date i mean first date Date late, late, late night? night. There you go. <laughs> <laughs> A couple extra steps. Uh, how was slow it? Slow motion. Uh, really, really good. Mm-hmm. Like the perfect summer movie. Oh, I great. loved it so much. And then we went home and watched Big Little Lies. Fantastic. Also loved it so much. We did, uh, what did we do? Uh, we did the Tonys in uh, game six of the Stanley Cup finals. Because St. Louis. Is, was. Is in, is in it. Is in it. And Tonight they, is game seven. This is Thursday, Wednesday. Tonight is game seven. It's all or nothing. And the game and St. Louis is playing again? Yes. Great. Yep. Well, the series is tied three to three. Whoever wins tonight wins the Stanley mm. Cup. St. Louis Blues have never won it before. I could not fucking care less about hockey. But, you know, when things get exciting yeah. and, you know, when it's your hometown mm-hmm. and when Laura Branigan is involved. How is Laura Branigan involved? Have I not explained this? I don't think so. Okay. So this past January, January 2019, uh-huh. the Blues were last in their in their division, right? On a terrible losing streak, they they lost to the the Flyers, I believe, in Philadelphia that night. Uh, they went and got drunk at a bar. Somebody, I don't know if it was on the team or not, put Gloria by Laura Branigan on the jukebox. And they were drunk and they started singing along and it buoyed their mood. And suddenly they – and then from that point on, they started winning and they rose to the top of their division. So now – um, as they have progressed through the playoffs, once they make it through the playoffs, first of all, it's their victory song. Mm. Um, about a quarter of the blues shirts that I saw when I was in St. Louis a couple weeks ago said play Gloria on them <laughs> or some variation mm-hmm. of that. Um, the, the top 40 station in St. Louis, Y98 will play, uh, Gloria for 24 hours after, wow. after they win. After they have won each uh, level of the playoffs so far, I think people are just gonna. I think Laura Brannigan will fully rise from the grave if if they win the Stanley Cup. And L- literal grave? Is she arch. no longer with us? She has been dead for some time. Yeah. Okay, got it. But yeah, it's a very weird thing about this particular season that I really, really love. Well, look, break a leg. Thank you to so you much. And the whole St. Louis I'll, soccer I'll, team. I'll watch it and yell and not have a clue what I'm looking at. <laughs> I can guarantee you that. Um. Speaking of yelling, speaking of yells, <laughs> we're going to be yelling a lot mm-hmm. when you hear this because this weekend we will be in Provincetown. Yes, we will. Reappearing at the Provincetown Film Festival. That is correct. We, we get there Friday, the day this drops. If you happen to be in the area, come see yeah, us. If you're in the Boston area, come out. We are on Saturday at 2.30 p.m. at the AMP Gallery. That is correct. We we can say who our guests are, yes, right? Sure. Uh, we, we have uh, Rob Epstein and Jeffrey Friedman, um, who are the filmmakers who made a little uh, documentary called The Celluloid Closet. Uh-huh. And they have a documentary in this festival, I believe, about Linda Ronstadt. That's right. So um, that's going to be exciting. That's very exciting. We also have uh, Corey Michael Smith, who we think. We think. Um, we might have Corey Michael Smith. I, I, I feel sure enough about it that we can say it. Anyway, come, you'll find out. Yeah. Uh, and in the spirit of all things Provincetown, uh, this week's episode is a two parter. Yes. First part is uh, TV and film director Silas Howard. Yes. Um, and second part is our old friend A.B. Cassidy returning yes. to the show, uh, who is a Provincetown Film Festival darling. 
and uh, we are talking all things P-Town. Uh-huh. We did this uh, live event at BuzzFeed. Yeah, at the end of a work day. Yeah. The, the BuzzFeed worker bees came in and uh, and had some free snacks and uh, sat and joined us and threw a cube around with a microphone in it. That's right. Such a, You'll hear such a hip crowd this such was. A hip crowd. So enjoy this one. And again, if you are anywhere near Provincetown, get your ass on a ferry, get yourself all the way there, and uh, come talk to us. Yep. And play Gloria. Yes. Folks, we are back with Silas Howard. Hello. Hey there. How are you? Oh my God, I'm good. Everything all right? Yes. It's it's a stressful morning out on the roads. It is. Be careful out there. Yeah. Uh, how's your year so far? You know, uh, it's been quite restful. I've actually taken a 2019, I've been away in New York working almost most of the last two years yeah. uh, between my film, feature film, and then various shows that I've been, had the good fortune to work on. So uh-huh. yeah, I feel like this has been a good time home writing, just getting kind of ready Ready for 2019. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. And during that that uh, home time, are you binging anything? What am I watching? Yeah. God, you know, I have been watching. Um, uh, I started watching uh, Russian Dolls. Russian Dolls. Yeah. With Natasha Leone. Yeah. Yeah. Everyone's raving about that right now. I'm two in. You're two in. Back for more. Yeah. Yeah. I'm four in. And um, I. Uh, also started High Maintenance, which I did an episode on, not to self-promote. but uh-huh. Go ahead. Please. Uh, if you that, can't do it that here. That just started in January, so I just started watching that. Uh-huh. Episode four is coming up. Uh-huh. Have you seen the dog one yet? Oh, yeah. That was from uh, the season before. Oh, okay, okay. Yeah. Grandpa, I think it's called. Yeah. All from the dog POV. Yeah. My friend Dalmar was the cinematographer on that. It's so good. Did such a you good know about job. this, Dave? No, I don't. You can probably I'm, explain it better than I can. It's, um, yeah. I know it's the really, show. It's the point, yeah. This so they're little vignettes, right? Little New York vignettes of various people, and a lot of my friends have been cast. And what I love about the show is that actually, they um, cast. They open all the roles to like transgender, nonconforming, like you know, spectrum of masculine or feminine. uh, Actors. So, but that is never really the part of the story. It's just a New York story. So they have fold in all the various people that live in New York. Um, So I've had a lot of friends that played roles that were they're just you know getting to be a New Yorker and, 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 and be, you know, who they are without yeah. having to, you know, explain themselves or whatever. Um, but in this vignette, <laughs> the particular point of view is of, from the dog. Uh, and the dog falls in love with the dog walker and then mm. sort of escapes. And, but it's all, yeah, it's all very grounded in that perspective. It's, That's beautiful. Yeah, it's my very, favorite thing I've ever seen. Really? Um, what else? Anything else on your queue? Oh my god! It's okay. I know. Favorite movie of 2018? Oh my god! I hate the. I'm so bad at these. It's okay. There's no wrong answer. How about this last movie you saw in the theater? Last movie I saw in the theater. Terrible. I'm a terrible person. I work in entertainment and I don't watch anything. Really? I read books. What do you read? (laughs) Um. Oh my god! Just this is the worst. It's okay. No, no, no. I know it's it's difficult being put on the spot. I understand. But let's talk about 
I mean, I, but I, I appreciate that you're not um, using the excuse I often use with television, which is like, it's my job. I have to watch this for hours a day, every day <laughs> yeah. and feel terrible afterwards, you know, um, that you're, you're finding other ways to enrich yourself. I'm creative. working on that. Yes. Yeah. I'm, okay. having, I'm trying to expand out yeah. you know, a little, a little theater, a little reading of books uh-huh. and writing mainly. Yeah. Um, I um, first saw you, this goes back probably five years, at Outfest. Um, I saw your documentary about Candy, I can't remember the... Bambi. Bambi, thank you. Bambi Lake. Yes. Yes. That was beautiful. Oh, thank you. So, yeah, you know, Bambi Lake is a singer, poet. She's in her... 60s, San Francisco, and she was part of the Coquettes in the 70s, yeah. part of the spoken word scene with Exine Cervenka and Henry Rollins, and, you know, just this larger-than-life character. And uh, she wrote this beautiful song called Golden Age of Hustlers that I did a music video with a bunch of talented people, and Justin Vivian Bond um, covers that song. And so we pulled all this archival footage of Bambi from the 80s performing, and uh and it just inspired me to do this short documentary with just two visits with her. But she gives that it? she gives really wow. good story. Yeah. So it was just like packed, you know. And, you know, as a trans woman at her age and having like gone through all these different eras and, you know, she admits to battling with, you know, various addictions and mental health issues. But she the song was just like I loved the way that her art could go places that she couldn't and sort of reach beyond. And yeah. uh um, but yeah, I thought her her perspective on life was quite rich and yeah. a little bit like Edie and Grey Gardens, the way the camera, you just put the camera on her and it just, she just sort of mm-hmm. does her thing yeah, and very much like releases this amazing phenomena. Right. What was your experience? I mean, you, you, did you ever, you obviously didn't see the Cockettes live. No. Unless, how, how long did they go? You know, I can't remember, but when my first feature by Hooker by Crook played at Sundance 2002, uh-huh. um, the directors of the Cockettes documentary were uh, premiering as well at Sundance. And so we were both Bay Area people. And um, yeah, that was really when I got the full uh, deep dive of, of understanding. I think it was the 70s. Uh-huh. I think it was mainly the 70s. And they had this thing where it was in North Beach and they were pulling in S- Sylvester and... I feel like John Watt. There was just like all these influences and sort of people that were gathering in this underground theater. Uh-huh. And then they took off, and then they had this big show in New York that they just totally didn't prepare for. I don't know right. if you saw the documentary. Yeah. It was just like a classic San Francisco fail. Totally. <laughs> Have you seen fail. the Cockettes no. documentary? It's amazing. Like, it, it, is. it is just like the quintessential weird San Francisco downtown, everybody's high show. And um, not that like down whatever. Um, and then they they tried to do it in New York at a theater, and it was just like they just showed up on stage on acid and <laughs> uh-huh. just like did, getting away with trying to get away with what they could get away with in San Francisco, yeah. but for a paying audience in New York. And the audience on the way out was like, I felt bad for them, like furious. <laughs> yeah, at what it was they had like seen. The, yeah, it was like all you know, New York is. I mean, I feel like people go to the New York go to New York to be the best. They go sure. to LA to get discovered. And I think at that point in time, and for you know, up until very recently, you go to San Francisco to just be weird, find yeah. yourself and find your people. And I'm actually glad that that's where I went in my twenties, just because sure. 
we got to make a lot of terrible stuff and find something new along the way. Yeah. Oh, what kind of terrible stuff did you make? Oh, God, lots of terrible stuff. Um, trying to think. Well, I, I – um, we had so I had a cafe called the Bearded Lady Cafe with Harry Dodge, and it was this little hole in the wall space in San Francisco next to a gallery called Kiki Gallery that my friend Rick started, who had just been diagnosed with AIDS and had this was pre cocktail early nineties, so he knew he had only a certain amount of time, and his goal was to just curate all this amazing art, and and it was like all those artists that he had are now hugely famous and like he just had such an eye for it and our cafe was right next to it yeah and so at our cafe we we just had a lot of weird performance like i don't know there was somebody who we it was the san francisco art institute did a show so you could come and just say i want to do a show here and you just we just like let you book it for the night and uh it was like little you know storefront that was like the size of three bowling alley lanes or something I remember one woman opened up 50 cans of tuna fish, dumped them on the floor, and like oh stomped up and down. And the the floors were like these cement porous floors, and it oh. just smelled like yeah. tuna oh, fish. No. So there was that That's, kind of art. I I I I long for that in my life. We don't get <laughs> tuna that fish here. performance art. Yeah, I mean, I, I do yeah. too. I mean, yeah. I mean, you could branch out the food groups, but like I, that kind of performance art is something that uh, LA is is sorely lacking. No, it right? was as far as I'm aware, it was amazing. And then all the neighborhood cats were just like flocking <laughs> yeah, to yeah. the wow. cafe. What years was this? Uh, Ninety two to two thousand. Wow. And we had you know experimental. Iconic writers like Kathy Acker, we had um, Joel Gomez, Justin Vivian Bondage shows, Kathy Opie's iconic, you know, photographer had her show uh, at the Kiki Gallery next to us. So even though it was so kind of ragtag and messy and anything goes, it was, um, there was some really interesting things that sparked out of that mm-hmm. because it was a lot of permission to just like, you know, curate experience people and new voices on this same little space and see what happens, which, yeah, there's not a lot of room for experimentation yeah. uh, in that format. Yeah, Where's that happening now? Is that kind of thing still happening, or has it been priced out of San Francisco? Yeah, I don't know. I think in San Francisco it's it might be, or on the East Bay, maybe in Oakland. Mm-hmm. Um, but I moved away from there 2005, so I wouldn't be yeah. the best resource. And now you're in Highland Park. I'm in Highland Park. The yes. San Francisco of Los Angeles. I guess so. Some say. And no one's ever said that. <laughs> it's not, not the San Francisco of I guess. It's a I mean, nice place. Sure. I know. I've been there for a long time. I went to New York for four or five years, and I came back, and I was like, holy shit, what's going on? Because yeah. there was so much. Yeah. It's a whole new world. Yeah. It's, it's a lot happening there. And so what was your way in as a director? Um, kind of out of that same community of experimentation i you know i was in a queer punk band called tribe eight and again we were like really didn't know what we were doing we just decided to have a band and ended up playing with like bikini kill and fugazi and green day and kind of coming out of this scene that was pushing sort of pushing the edges of you know music industry and queer representation in punk and rock and uh so i had that and I just had, I kept being part of this group that was like, we need to make what we want because it's not there. Mm-hmm. So you, you want a place to make art, you got to get a space, you got to, you know, you got to open it up. You want this kind of music, you got to make it. And then out of that same line of thinking, it was, uh, I wanted to see a certain kind of, uh, you know, uh, representation on film. And so my friend Harry Dodge and I uh, did this film by Hooker by Crook. So without having made a short, 
or anything. People are like, you should make a short. And we're like, nah, nobody's, who's watches shorts? We're right. not going to, you know, cut to many years later, you know, we were finally able to make the film, but it was a lot, lot of work. Um, but it played in Sundance, played at South by, got best feature. And um, it's a weird ass movie, but it's taught in a lot of queer cinema classes. So yeah. I've sat in on some and I'm like watching these grad students deconstruct the movie, things that were, you know, they are pulling this meaning from. And I'm like, oh my God, no idea. <laughs> I yeah. didn't know I was so brilliant. <laughs> <laughs> it's kind of an amazing thing. But it was a group of people that were very talented and some had film experience. And I think for, for Harry and I, it was just, we wanted to show different characters that were gender nonconforming or trans, masculine, without that being what the story is about. Mm-hmm. So it was much more, we were inspired by movies like Midnight Cowboy, mm-hmm. um, you know, these transformative friendships that could save you. You know, and you might think you're going to do this big lofty thing. You're going to be like, you know, uh, save this or be a hustler or whatever. But in fact, like the the thing you could do is is right next to you. That was the most sort of powerful. Wow. I'm I'm curious uh, because you work a lot as a television director, which can be just by nature of the job, a very rigid, like gun for hire. You step in, the parameters are already there. What it's like when you come from such an eclectic background and you're you're uh, you you have this kind of feels like trailblazer approach to your work like how do you reconcile it to yeah it is odd well i think i've done indie film for so many years so i did by hook by crook and then i did a you know a short doc called what i love about dying that was about a mentor of mine that was at sundance and then you know i went to ucla and i did another micro budget film sunset stories with ernesto ferranda and i just kept making work the the doc on bambi and and so I, w- I was like, oh, I'm, I'm, I'm not going to make work that's necessarily going to find the funding, but I'm still able to make work. Like there's success on that level. Um, and around that time, I got a Guggenheim for all of that work that was unfunded. And so that was like an incredible sort of message to keep going that way and sort of self-define that that is success, even if there's not a budget. And the stories I want to tell are like, about people who are typically marginalized, but center those stories. That's just, you know, and just not fall into that explaining dynamic because I've really felt like every time you do that, you keep people far away. And if you just center it, you can really connect, you know, if you don't explain. And even in my first film, you know, a lot of the students that were studying it were like, oh, I kept expecting these characters to talk about X, Y, and Z because of what they were looking like and being like, and they didn't. And at first I was frustrating and then it kind of got me to connect. Um... So with TV, what made what ended up working for me is that the stories that I was interested in were starting to connect to the shows that I was being brought on to. So Transparent was one of the first shows that I did. And I knew Lady J and Ali Liebegott. I knew writers from New York or San Francisco. And so I was like, oh, this is a different approach. And I think also being in a band, I understand the collaborative nature. Like when I do my own films, it's I get to build the world one way. But when you jump into these other structures, you get to like bring your impression to something that's a big collaboration. So yeah, so it really didn't feel unnatural to me in terms of you know the stakes of filmmaking on indie and the stakes of filmmaking with the budget. And uh, and then storytelling wise, I've been able to work on shows like Pose and transparent and even the fosters or you know like even or high maintenance like just shows um i worked on tales of the city reboot recently it's on netflix so it's like i've been in such a queer world i feel really like 
one big win of so many years of poverty telling stories that I wanted to tell was that actually uh, showrunners that got, finally got access to telling show, you know, these kind of stories had a similar sensibility to mine. It was a good match. Did you, what did you, was there a piece of art that made, that felt like it reflected you when you were growing up? There were little various glimpses, you know, it's like, I mean, I think, yeah, there are always these moments where you'd see a little hint of yourself or you'd just see representation that was like, you know, masculinity, like a female masculinity, you know, because in terms of being transmasculine or being butch, like that's never, that was so rarely depicted. Um, yeah, I would see it along the way, but not, it, it was so rare, you know, it was just yeah. so rare every once in a while. And even films like Set It Off, I felt like they had Queen Latifah's character be really butch and it wasn't part of it. It was like, it, it made you go beyond that. So there's like these movies along the way that caught glimpses of it. Right. But um, but yeah, I feel like, no, I didn't growing up really see things that connected, but I just translated stories. And I think that's the thing that's starting to shift right now is people are understanding if you, tr- if you center a story, actually other people can do the math. You can, show, you can look at somebody's life that has nothing to do with yours, but if it's like fully centered, you get to connect. That's the big exciting part of storytelling is you can connect to people outside of your immediate you know, group. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, and specificity is the most universal thing, yeah. it turns out, right? Yeah. Um, yeah. Is there a piece of pop culture, a, a movie you love or a show you watch or a, even a musical artist that you listen to that people would be really surprised by? <laughs> oh, my God, I'm the worst at thinking no. questions. I am. I, what I'm really asking Queer is, do you ever dabble in trash is what I'm asking All the you. time. Yeah. Oh, yeah. What to you is trash? Well, I have a very, I don't, I mean, is it, I guess, yeah, pop culture, entertainment, I mean, I have value that. I definitely am like, even though I come from such underground culture that pushed against that, I think it's like there's a real joy in like the epic Hollywood blockbuster that has the crazy sound effect and pushes everything, you know, I get pulled in, but I'm not really good at citing it. It's okay. Can you just add in other, just throw in some names. You can just match my voice. Okay, just do like a really bad sound edit. Yeah, just throw in some like, you know. (laughs) So there is, there's a girlfriend along uh, along the uh, with you today. Oh yes, yes, there is. How she was invited into on? the studio but declined. Yes. Julieta saying, "I know she's a she's a brilliant academic writer." Yeah. And uh she's probably writing very smart things over in the other room as opposed to listening to me talk about her. Uh-huh. So how long has this been going on? A year half. Okay. Yes. Ooh, that is a that is a beautiful time period in yes. the relationship. Yes. She's a tenured professor in Richmond, Virginia, so long distance is very uh, much in, in play yeah. here. Uh-huh. How, how do you manage? I mean, she's here now, obviously. She's visiting. Um, yeah, it's tricky. She's on sabbatical, and she just had her second book come out called No Archive Will Restore You on Amazon. You can get it. It's on Punctum Press. Um so she's on a sabbatical, so she could pop out and visit. And uh, I've been working in New York most of the time. Um, like I said, with a kid like Jake, the feature I did, and then Pose. And 
uh, the last few shows. So been able to a little bit closer New York to Richmond. But yeah, it's a tough, it's a tough sort of distance to manage. But it's good. How did you meet? Through uh, f- mutual friends. Huh. Mm-hmm. Was it a setup? Yes, I think it might have been a setup. Yeah, I think it might have been a setup. There was a Talk sort of like, it. huh? Talk us through it. How did it happen? I think it was just like, oh, do you want to come to dinner with our friend? And then it was like the name all caps, so that if I wanted to look her up or whatever. Mm-hmm. Sure. And then. Uh, and did you? I did, and I was uh-huh. like, oh, a writer and a babe, and uh-huh. you know all those things. So uh, then we went to dinner, and the friend. So it was a couple um, kind of orchestrated buying a ticket to the show I was going to after that so they could all go with me. So they were very much kind of helping it along. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Those are good yeah. friends to have. Those are good friends. And wh- was there a meet-cute moment? I mean, was it love at first sight? There was a, a spark of like, oh, uh, you know, very um, uh, idiosyncratic sense of humor. And like, yeah, I just was like, she was very... Um, she had give, just given a speech at NYU, and I, I, yeah, there was a sort of spark right away of like, you know, oddness and sense of humor, and you know, yeah, there was. And she, I mean, given both of your professions, I would assume the long distance thing. There's not a uh, an end in sight for that with the long distance, right? No, we have we have to use a, a bit of denial to just sort of go. Right. There could be an end in sight, but we're not sure when. So best to not yeah. think too. There far may ahead. be a light at the end very, of the tunnel, but you can't look for it yeah. because we have know. to be very in the in the moment. I mean, that's don't we all exactly? Let it be a lesson. Uh, before your current girlfriend, had you been single for a while? or No, I had been in a long-term relationship uh, with a collaborator of mine, Heather Ott. She's an actor and writer and um, just started making her own films. So, yeah. And <laughs> how much time between that and new relationship well, lapsed? Like a year. Okay. Yeah. That's acceptable. Very solid. Yes. We'll take that. I really appreciate the, uh, <laughs> phew. That's all I can say. This is getting, it's getting uncomfortable. Good thing you got the headphones off. Cause God, I thought the it, list right? of like movies I don't watch and books I don't read was hard. Now I'm like, who am I? Why? What? This is so, terrible. Well, I, terrible. I'm assuming because you're. Terrible people. <laughs> <laughs> I'm assuming because you, you are naming her that you and your ex are on. Good terms. Yeah, we're really, we are. We support each other's work. And again, like we uh, collaborated. And a lot of when I was in LA for a while, you know, I, I moved down here after my first feature. I went to UCLA. I had a feature in development at HBO right away. And so everything was exciting. It was, you know, happening, happening, happening. And then it wasn't. And then the economy crashed. And I moved to New York. So there was just this time when, uh, we had gotten together that I was like, oh, I'm going to leave, I'm going to leave this, this industry because it's just making me feel nuts. There's a lot of waiting. It's a sunny day after sunny day. 20 years could go by and I'm still waiting. And I went to New York um, where Heather lived and just kind of rejoined my friends like Justin Vivian Bond and all these downtown performers and cabaret performers and remembered what I was inspired by. Yeah. And just sort of made smaller work that was that I could make and connected to the thing that, you know, 
made me feel like I was creative again, you right. know. So that was a, a part of that, you know, relationship and connection to community. And that's really how I survived as filmmakers is community of people that I work with and, and you know, connect to. Yeah. So, Where did you grow up? Vermont. Whereabouts? Burlington-ish, yeah. Okay. Yeah, yeah. I had, like, those teenager parents that were chaotic or whatever and lived all around Vermont. So we moved around Vermont. Okay. But just in that one state. Gotcha. Yeah. Gotcha. And then uh, when did you when did you escape? Uh, 18, I moved to San Francisco. Uh-huh. Yeah. You, you had enough of Vermont. I could not wait to leave. What yeah. is the culture of, what is it like being a queer teen in Burlington, Vermont? Well, it's probably different now since, you know, but back then, there, you know, it's, yeah, there wasn't a lot. And there's a lot of different kinds of Vermont. There's a very working class Vermont, which is what I grew up in. But then there's a lot of wealthy people that move to Vermont and creative people that move there. So there's this sort of mix. So I felt like I had access to stuff that was helpful. I saw there was, there was music. There was a good movie theater that played, you know, movies that were from Europe. And, you know, you could have access to stuff. But, um, but, uh, but I felt also very sort of stuck in the kind of working class. I went to a really working class high school. Most people didn't go to college out of that. A lot of people were like, went into the reserves or whatever if they wanted to go to college. So, yeah. So I felt like I, uh, I, yeah, I couldn't wait to leave. And I kind of escaped first by, through trying to go to college. And then, um, and then I was just like landed in San Francisco and I was like, oh, I'm just going to be a queer punk in San Francisco. Yeah. Fuck it all. Yeah. Did you present as queer at all in, in Vermont in your youth? Not really, no. I think it took moving to San Francisco. Yeah, because, yeah, it was a different time then, too. It was really, there's so little representation of anything. So it's one thing if you just see terrible representation of yourself. When there's nothing at all, you're just like, oh, it's really bad. Yeah. Um, so I moved to San Francisco, and I was still, like, kind of, you know, country bumpkin in San Francisco. And um, and then I remembered, you know, I, I tell this story, but I saw this this sort of like act up uh, action where they crashed gay pride. And it was like, they had a tow truck pulling a cop car, like a fake cop car. And there were all these drag queens and punks and trans people that were just like um, hitting it, you know, hitting the cop car with a shoe or a baseball bat as a, a nod to Stonewall, but also looking at like all the stuff around act up and, you know, um, you know, uh, homophobia, you know, around gay people and lesbian and queer people that were um, dying of AIDS then. And there was just like so, you know, the government was so overt in its hatred. It was a very unsubtle, much like now, time about like, you're not worthy. You should, you know, these people should be quarantined. And I remember seeing this amazing act of like rebellion that instead of like being directed inward was sort of outward. And it was also kind of sexy and it was fun and it was funny. And, um, that's when I was like, oh, there's my people. Yeah. And How powerful. It was. So How that, old were you? It, you know, like 18. Oh, my so God. So then I just went home and cut my hair into a mohawk. Because I was like, oh, they don't know I'm their people because I don't look like them yet. So yeah. then I just conformed immediately to punk. Yeah. Um, but yeah, no, it was a really exciting time because it was a bit of like anything goes. There's, you know, people weren't trying to save face or be successful. It was just sort of like a very outwardly rebellious fun time. So what were those early days of finding your people like? Like, what did that look like day to day? Where'd you work? What did you do? Oh, God, did we? Yeah, we worked in like, you know, 
cafes or restaurants, those uh-huh. kind of things. Um, yeah, some people worked at strip clubs or, you know, wherever, you know, or car mechanics. I think it was like all of those kind of jobs, yeah. anything you could find. Yeah. yeah. How did y'all meet each other? There was... You know, it was, I think in San Francisco at that time, there, there were, um, there was a feeling of spotting each other. So there was that action and there was, you know, a lot of actions around act up and then queer nation. So then it was kind of like, oh, we're going to have kissins. We're going to have, you know, it was just like, a, again, a lot of, uh, uh, performance around, you know, activism, you know, putting on some sort of a show. And so you'd spot each other, you'd go to events, and then there was a lot of music in San Francisco. And so I think that's when, like, this queer punk uh, uh, small gathering started to happen within a very straight punk scene, which was happening at Gilman Street. And you could just spot each other. You'd see, like, oh, there's there's a couple over there. Because there weren't enough of us yet. We weren't compartmentalized. So we'd sort of gather, you know... Um, all the sort of out, outcast outsiders would gather together. And it, and it was kind of exciting because it wasn't just like separated so much as you could, you know. Uh, uh, the bars at that time, like gay bars were over here and lesbian bars were over here. And, you know, if you were kind of not fitting into either, you weren't really welcome in either. So you had to make a sort of new space. Right. Yeah. And what's going on in your dating life at this stage? <laughs> yeah, back to the dating life. <laughs> What? Oh my God! What do you mean? What was going on? Are, were you dating? Of course, yeah. And anything um, significant? Well, we started a band just to get dates. Probably most of all. Sure. That was what do you the play, main by thing. the way? Guitar. Nice. Um. So uh, yeah, we were all dating, and you know, I was thinking about it. it. Was it was really because of the devastating loss of of AIDS, you know, I mean, I I feel like the generation that wasn't blindsided by it, but raised on it. So like I came out in a scene and that was the first thing I knew about was like, you know, and then I I would just meet all these incredible mentors in San Francisco who would then die, you know? And so it was like, there were all these memorials and it was a lot to process to like come out and be rebellious and be like, you know what, we're here and it's a high cost because people hate us. And so we're, we're here even louder, hate us even more, whatever, you know, just kind of leaning into it in a, in, in a sense. Um, but then we we're also kind of handling all this grief that I think we were kind of young to even really understand, mm-hmm. you know? So I think that just fueled, sex even more and and being out there and talking about it and safe sex and you know everything was about like being very safe and being very it made a lot of communication happen around sex that made sex better so mm-hmm. i think that it yeah I mean, in in a sense even though it was around so much devastation and loss it kind of pushed us to be more authentic or just more playful about it and so now that you're in San Francisco and you've had this transformative experience and you're, you know, presenting differently and, we, and you've got the mohawk, do you at some point mm-hmm. have to go back to Vermont and say, oh, yeah. hey, guess what? Oh, yeah. I remembered going home, yeah, with the mohawks. I had this, like, kind of floppy mohawk and I got my first tattoo, which is on the side of my head and uh, by my friend. And it was her, like, second tattoo she'd ever given. And, <laughs> and uh, I remembered going home to see my uh, family, and I got off the plane. There, it was um, my parents, who both had remarried, but they were all friends, and because uh, they had gotten together when they were like sixteen and were runaways, and you know had me when they were seventeen, and so they became friends after they divorced. So they were there with their new people, and I got off the plane, and they were just looking past me, and 
and I walked all around them. Like they basically, they I just didn't register to them. They didn't recognize me. And then I walked around them, and then I was like, finally like, hey. And then they, you know, so there was this big uh, transformation of visuals that yeah. was part of my, you know, late teens, early twenties coming out. Um, but because I, you know, they were parents that were younger and kind of came out of the seventies. You know, they had an openness to being you know that i was a freak and you know it was i i was lucky in that way and i think when i would go back there's a thing when you realize that what you want to do it's you spend so long it you know denying yourself once you finally let yourself be that then there's this kind of release where you don't care you know Mm -hmm. really um it's kind of a powerful thing and i think that's what is lucky about any of us that have had to come out a number of times either being queer, being trans, you know, it's like that that conflict, inner conflict, and then when you finally find the support and the ability to do that, um, it's it's just very liberating, and I think that becomes contagious at some point. What's your relationship like with them now? Oh, good. well, my dad passed away about oh, six years ago, and um, but yeah, he, you know, I I was um, yeah, I remembered I was transitioning when he was starting to have his last like couple years. Life and we had a lot of um, we had a lot of bonding over like what we were both going through and so, and then my mom, yes, she's great. She's just like a kind of hilarious character and she still can't get the gender pronouns. Like (laughs) every time I'm visiting with her or whatever, I'm like, get the pronouns right, mom. And she's like, oh, they'll just think I'm crazy or whatever because she'll still be like, she here. This is my my daughter, my son, my but I'm just like, oh my god, it's so much information for the store cashier. Yeah. I'm just like, <laughs> stop. <Yeah. laughs> but um, but it's not with malice. It's just something that you know. I think she had this like kind of butch kid for a long time and was okay with that. And it was just just takes a long time for her. And it's never yeah. been an issue of acceptance. It's just no. the the practicalities almost exactly. Are. And that's very fortunate. That's not the case for a lot of people. So I yeah. feel like there are moments and there's certain some, you know, there's occasionally someone in my family that's like, boom, that's too much. I can't deal with you. And that's painful, but it's, um, but I'm, I'm lucky in that that's not the majority of my family. There's just a ton of support. Um, yeah, which is a big deal. Yeah. Silas. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you. you. For doing this. <laughs> oh my god. Congratulations on everything. Thank you. Oh, we're still on. Oh, okay. Oh yeah. Oh, okay. We're not letting you go yet. Oh, okay. I was <laughs> over. Well, the last two questions. Okay. Do you whether you've had this conversation or not with your girlfriend, do you want to be married at some point? Um, I was queer married before it was legal um with my partner several partners ago, mm-hmm. uh, Sarah, and I was really glad because it was like a big ritual and because it wasn't actually legally accepted, it, I don't know, it made it a little bit more our own. Like it, it was, I was like, oh, the power of ritual is a really big deal, you know, to bring everybody together and to have that um, that's not tied into this sort of tradition that's so problematic um, was really amazing. But uh, But then, you know, as far as, people having the ability to legally marry, I, you know, that's an important right. And that's like, you know, for many reasons, uh, you know, but do I want to be married? Is that what it was? Was that mm. the question? I don't think in a legal way. No, no, I don't know. I'm not for me. I don't judge for other people, oh. but I just think a ritual or some sort of thing. That's like a big party. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Okay. 
As really? long as some outfits can be pulled together, some performance can happen, a lot sure. of food. Yeah. What could be a better wedding than that? Yeah. Because, you know, there's also gay divorce. True. I don't know if you guys have heard about that, but it's sounds rough. Yeah. It's a real thing. It's yeah. Coming for all of us. I mean, not me, hopefully. God, no, Are you no. married? No, no. But maybe someday? Yeah. I, I do love a, I, I love a gay wedding and a queer wedding. I won't lie. Yeah. So, yeah. And beyond your adorable dog that you showed us a picture of, do you want to be a parent to a human? <laughs> I have, um, I, uh, I actually really love having kids in my life. I have godsons and they're incredible. They like keep me honest all the time and they're way ahead of me in terms of like gender and everything. Um, you know, and Julieta has a daughter who's six, who's incredible, cool. like amazing. I just feel like, oh my God. I get why people have kids in their life because you have this different connection to what's important and being really present. I think it's a lot about that too. Mm -hmm. I think it's very hard to just be present. Um, and, uh, yeah, you just see the way, you know, young people have all of this originality and then you, you see where it can get kind of compromised along the way. And so, yeah, I, in that way I do. Um, but I, I kind of take it a day at a time with that, mm -hmm. but no matter what. And I'm really, like, very attached to teaching. So that's another way where a lot of my students that I've had, I still stay in touch with. And so, yeah, I do feel like I have I have kids in my life in a way that's not as direct as, like, I'm a parent to them, but I feel very part of and very grateful to be part of their lives. Yeah. Yeah. We're very grateful that you were a part of this show. Yeah. You guys. Seriously, Whoa, thank I you. don't even know what all I said. You I said it all. I all said the good all. stuff. Oh, my God. Silas, thank you. Thank you so much. All right. Are you? Are you shall we account? flank Are you? you? Stan? Shall you? What? Let's do this. <laughs> Let's do this. Hey, yeah. hi everybody. Thanks for coming out, guys. Thank you, and thank you for keeping a, a two-row yeah, distance. I know. Yeah. I feel like this is a comedy show. You guys thought we were going to heckle you. You're like, can't <laughs> yeah. sit up front. Uh, feels good. Yeah. Are you? Has anybody watched the new Veep this season? Yes. Because you know Matt Walsh's character works. Doesn't he work at Buzzfeed? At Buzzfeed. It looks different than this i just want to say that for yeah. the, the listeners yeah this is a beautiful campus yeah a a proper there is a whole fridge of Lacroix. yeah, yeah. next to a kombucha on tap yeah <laughs> which i'm enjoying right now get after it get after it thank you all for joining us and for taking time out of your busy day um uh what so is this like the official like lgbtq buzzfeed uh employees social group who are we talking about? Uh, that I'm tracks that tracks Part members members of. of okay cool great very good that's exciting very um so what what's good in uh in gay tv now ab is there anything that you're watching and loving well i'll tell you what i'm excited for the l word is making a comeback is that oh, true yes oh yeah oh yeah a couple other excited lesbians out there yeah. 
<laughs> it was solid. I've been waiting a long time. Uh, yeah, it's coming back. And yeah. it's so funny. It was originally based in West Hollywood, and mm-hmm. I swear the, the new season, they're moving it to the east side. It's going to be Silver Lake lesbians. Oh, wow. Like, it's if, all if they don't get A.B. Cassidy in yeah. that at some point, then that's their loss. <laughs> yeah, truly. I'm not an East Side lesbian, though. I'm not. I Wait, got my you're backwards not? hats. Uh, I'm kind of. I'm like West Hollywood. Oh, yeah. that's because you're young. Yeah, there we go. You know, <laughs> when you, you'll age out of it like we all do. Oh, I just. Oh God. oh, God. Oh, God. What's happened now? Hey, um, can you catch me up on the L word? I never did see it. Wow. First of all, I'm not surprised. Uh, yeah. <laughs> yep. Uh, a lot of lesbian sex, and uh-huh. uh, that's about it. That's okay. about it. Uh, Shane's real bad. That's all I know. Yeah, Shane is like the go-to. That's like their sexy, like, right. the, everyone idolizes her. Honestly, the show was cool because it was the first show to, like, show uh, queer women representation, right? Right. So that was really exciting because they finally actually had some, you know, uh, real representation. But the show itself... There were so many flaws with it. Like it could have been done so much better. That it actually was like a little bit offensive. Like they didn't handle trans characters very well. Right. Um, there were like a lot of really offensive things. I think there were like maybe two people of color in like the whole show. Yeah. It was basically like white wealthy West Hollywood. Right. Powerhouse lesbians just all having sex with each other. Sure. Sure. So I believe that the next season uh, is going to be more inclusive. I know they like just finished um, hiring in the writers' room and they're looking for like gender nonconforming writers and trans writers and like the I heard that 90% of the cast now is actually diverse and like women of color and they're bringing back like the old cast to kind of like make cameos some of them are producing but for the most part they're doing it to make a huge step forward and create this new show that does have real diversity and representation okay and when you watched the original run did you see yourself in any of the characters ah No, um, I didn't only because there were no bush lesbians in the show um, or gender queers of any type. Um, but it was my first time ever having anybody be, like explain lesbian sex to me. Right. So I think in a way I saw myself in that sense. I was like, oh, this is what I'm supposed to be doing. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> so that helped. Yeah. 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 And it was the only representation that there was. That was so it. you it have to sort of like Ellen. squint and go, I guess I see my, I guess that's me. Right. Yeah. From a far away distance, I'm like, no, I'm that one. Uh-huh. Yeah. Right. yeah. Right. But it definitely was like monumental into like helping me become myself like I had never seen you know queer women represented I'd never seen two women like being together and it did talk about coming out and like families that didn't accept them and stuff like that so in that sense it was helpful like I remember when it used to play I used to like we'd have like family dinner and I would like rush down to the basement where I like uh-huh. had it recorded like nobody come down here yeah. <laughs> and I, like close yeah. the door like this is my time with the yeah. TV yeah it was like it was like porn almost yeah, uh, yeah sure yeah but it was good it was definitely learning but I'm excited to see it again now now that we're in 2019 and a time where you know diversity and representation really matters i'm excited to see what happens with the show for sure matt is there anything that's caught your eye you know i I, full disclosure i have not seen this yet and yet i'm still going to give it a plug because i love uh ryan o'connell so much who's been on our show and he has a new show on netflix called special yeah he created and stars in about um his life as a gay disabled guy uh, looking for love, uh-huh. I believe. Have what? not seen it. That sounds amazing. <laughs> yeah, it's supposed to be great. 
feel bad. I haven't seen it, but yeah. still giving him a shout out. Right. Let's aren't keep you, talking about shows we haven't seen. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> but honestly, aren't you at the stage where like, I, you know, I see like an HBO billboard for something that appeals to me and I'm like, God damn it. Don't have the bandwidth. I don't have the time. It goes at the end of the list and the list is very long. And sometimes I'm like, I can read a review and I'm like, okay, I support this thing and I love it and I'm not going to watch it. But I, yeah, the yeah, other yeah. two on Comedy Central haven't seen a frame love that show. Okay. Love it, love it yeah. dearly. Okay, I have to tell you, that is... Okay, by applause, who has seen the other two? Okay. By applause, who hasn't seen it? Who is going to mind if I spoil something? I'm, I'm clapping. Okay. Oh, I'm not... Oh, I won't mind. No, sorry. You won't mind. I clapped wrong. Sorry. Okay. Do spoil. The, Proceed. The, the other two, for me, is a perfect example of why representation is important. Not just important to have gay characters, but important to have people, like, gay people writing and directing and and centering the story on gay characters. There's a moment in episode three or four where uh, Drew Tarver's character, whose name I don't remember, um, is getting hit on uh, at a club. And the guy is like, you know, I've known you for a while. I, just, I had no idea you were gay. And he goes, thank you. Hmm. And then he immediately realizes how fucked up that is yeah. to say something like that. And he becomes very self-conscious. And it was like, that in that moment was like six full years of therapy. Yeah. But in like 12 seconds of TV, it, it was such a beautiful moment where I, I saw myself and it was like, that is, that is just a very wise moment. And I think, you know, people in their early 30s right now, I hope got over that moment when they were teenagers. I did not. I was more that character's age. Yes. Um, it, it's, it's a beautiful show. It's a really funny show. Like I said, I love that show. Of course. I love that <laughs> of course. You'll get around to it at some point. Was there, like, did you, who before the L word um, kind of made you think, like, yeah, that might be, this might be my place in the world? Was there an, an actor or a... Uh, um, there kind of isn't, is there? No, there's really not. No. And I think that's actually what made me want to make that, you know, because yeah. there really wasn't. Um, I remember, I remember like when I was younger, the only comparable person when I was coming out as a lesbian, the only comparable person was Ellen because mm-hmm. she was just the most common, most known lesbian. And I'd have like these times where we'd have to go out to like, you know, a family dinner or an event or whatever, and I'd have to dress nice and I wouldn't know what to wear. And I would like be crying because I'd be so frantic and I'd be like, I don't know what to wear. And my dad would like want to help me, but he didn't know how. And he'd come in and he'd be like, well, what does Ellen wear? Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) I was like, I don't know. I don't think I want to wear what Ellen wears. She wears sweaters. It's too hot. Uh, So I think that, you know, it was definitely, that was difficult. I later, you know, discovered that I I do identify as gender fluid or or non-binary. I'm gender non-conforming. So I think that once I kind of discovered that, I was like, oh, this this makes sense. Like, it was actually through a pair of, like, boys' underwear that I bought at Target that were briefs that I was... They were, they were literally Superman briefs that I was like, I need to own these. Uh, these are underwear for me. But it was literally through that that I was like, oh, that's who I am. That's yeah, what yeah, I am. Yeah. And that's why I want to create characters and why I want to play characters that it's not just about a coming out story or like, oh, I'm gay, and it's like this thing, but there's just naturally representation of people that look like me of you know it's just if there is representation with lesbians it's this one type this feminine lesbian you know or a very stereotype on what a butch lesbian is or should be but there's no one that's just this 
person, you know, that's just kind of doesn't adhere to these gender norms. Right. And I'd like there to be. Right. And if there is, this is another thing. I look back to my youth and every gay character was there to teach the straight character something. Right. To just sort of mm-hmm. pop in, yeah. uh, like be gay, be like totally normal and non-threatening. Sassy, give yeah. some good advice. Sometimes you sassy. Go you go and get them, girl. Yeah. 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 <laughs> yeah. And then Sometimes I ha- tried to become that person to <laughs> sure. my straight friends. I was like, that's my role. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But so yeah, they, and yeah, they just, they, they, uh, they, they give you some wisdom. Uh, they maybe get sick. Yeah, the magical homo that yeah. just appears when yeah. you need them. Yeah. exactly. They'll help dress you and send you out on a date. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. There are two things I remember very vividly about Melrose Place, which at the time was revolutionary because there was a gay character uh, played by Doug Savant who like every third episode would be like at a table in the background at the place where they would play pool and that was it. Um, they, they, uh, there was a scene way at the beginning of the series where all the male characters were watching a football game game except for the gay one so because it was like because somebody in the writer's room was like that would not be believable for the gay guy to be watching a football game with other uh straight people uh and then they uh in like season two or three when he finally got to uh kiss another boy they uh they like doug savant and whoever the boy was like their heads sort of came close to each other the camera panned away and instead of seeing the kiss you saw andrew shu go like that and (laughs) that was it because there were no gay voices in the writer's room. Or if there were, they didn't feel empowered to speak up and say, that is not how that works. Right. Like, the mouths actually go on each other. Yeah. It's not about what the straight person thinks. I've been thinking about this a lot because I, as some of you may I'm a big Friends and Jennifer Aniston stan. Uh-huh. And so I wrote this great, I read, read, didn't write, read <laughs> this great book called The One About Friends. And I can't remember the writer's name. It's excellent. And she, it is in a way just sort of a history of the show, but she also does a great job of, of like summarizing the dichotomy of how Friends was in many ways revolutionary for its time. That it, I think, depicted the first same sex wedding or maybe the first lesbian wedding. Maybe Roseanne was, but, um, and yet at the same time, like lesbian was frequently a punchline on the show. And uh, there are the, all these strains of homophobia, but at this, you know, that it, 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 it did make efforts in its own little sort of messed up way to um, embrace inclusivity. In retrospect, they did a pretty bad job, but um, it just, it's so funny, like looking back on these, you know, formative um, examples of representation and going like, oh, that was so limited and yet at the time it was just enough because that's what we had right right it's it you know it's a strange thing because i you know we we have this show um i you know write about my experiences a, a gay man frequently and there are people in my life who i'll call my immediate family who uh who say things like why do you have to talk about it so much and which is like, and I, I understand in a way where they are coming from because they are heterosexual people in the Midwest who don't get challenged on these things a lot. Um, but it is important to talk about this stuff. Yeah. Not that just like the experience of like being an adult gay person is that interesting, but the, the experience of going through your life and trying to find yourself reflected back in your culture does give you an opinion on the culture. Mm-hmm. Um, going through the experience of being someone who is different and having that experience completely on your own, as we all must, 
does give you a perspective on adult life. Like it is important. Yeah. Right. And you, AB, you've uh, like, uh, have, as far as I know, always been out as a performer. And, um, but I'm curious if you've ever had voices in your family or in your life who sent you similar messages. Absolutely. Like, well, when I, when I was first, I mean, like I said, I, I've been knowing that I was like different or whatever since I was like really young and it was not necessarily easy to hide it. Um, but I did have certain family that like encouraged me to like, until I was older to hide it as best as I could. Mm-hmm. Um, and to not like tell a lot of people. And then when I was like 18, it was just like bursting from the seams. I'm so gay. I can't yeah. hold it in. Uh, <laughs> but when I first started stand up, cause I'm a stand up comedian. And when I first started stand up, one of the biggest notes I got a lot, well, one of them was to look up. Apparently I looked at the ground the whole time. Mm-hmm. Um, but the other one was that I just talked about too much gay material and it wasn't relevant enough. And it really got to me because I was like, I get it. I get that that's a marginalized community and it's not as big as whatever, but all these other comics are going up and talking about what dick pic they received or what date they went on or some Tinder nightmare. Like they're talking about their heterosexual experience. You know, they might not be saying, let me tell you about being straight because they don't have to preface it that way. But essentially that's what they're talking to me about. So I kept getting this note over and over and people would say, they'd be like, look, I think you're hysterical, but it just feels like too much gay content. It's like, but I'm not, I'm not up there lecturing or whatever. I'm just sharing a story about me getting called sir or me being, you know, whatever it is. And that just, I don't know why that has to fall under something that's, I don't know. So I worked really hard to make like more generic um, and uh, more relatable content like jokes. Mm-hmm. And every time I tell them though, I just go back to the gay. Like I'll put up like, all right, I got to put two, in two jokes about LA and then I'll circle back to being a gender queer. And right. then I will talk about getting kicked out of the bathroom earlier. You yeah. know, like yeah. I, I can't yeah. like, it's hard. It's my life. I'm a comedian. I get up, I'm a storyteller, right? I'm telling stories of my life. So to get up and be like, well, don't do too much of that. It, sure. It's, it's baffling, but it's a note I get constantly. Sure. Yeah, I think, you know, part of the, I guess, sort of mission of this podcast is, that, you know, that we are our, our sort of rough format is that we talk to, to queer people about what they're loving pop culture wise. But but then the, the meat of it is really who you're loving. And we get into love life stuff and invasive questions about sex and uh, dating, all that stuff. But and, and, and part of it is just that that's what I always want to talk about with people. I just want to know, like, who you're fucking. But I also... <laughs> I also think there is something very ref- just uh, it does still need to be normalized in yeah. a way that we just, we don't quite have the um the the freedom to you know talk about romance and dating and sex and stuff quite the way our straight counterparts do. Right. Yeah, I I get scared to hold a girl's hand in public still, you sure. know. So I think that if that is still a thing, yeah. it's hard when you're on a stage of people that you don't know if they're accepting or whatever. It is hard to be like, let me do all content about something you might hate. You know, yeah, it yeah. does make sense in a way to have to sprinkle in these things for them to feel that I'm relatable and then connect a bridge between me and them. I get that. But at the same time, it's like, it sucks that that's how it has to be. Yeah. Right. Uh, you did a TEDx talk, I think last year yeah. called the, the, what it was something about what was the title of it? Something about failure. Um, the what's it? It's a really funny title. It's like why uh, failure is bad. Yeah. <laughs> but um, I, I was thinking about that, uh, you know, vis-a-vis this conversation because I wonder if you know, even though we are 
you know, at least in the context of our bubble, we're in this like queer visibility boom. But in the, you know, grander scheme of things, we're not really. I guess what I'm asking is, do you feel like um, you have less freedom to fail because you, uh, for better or worse, represent something to your audience? Shit, we're getting deep. Uh, <laughs> okay, I actually remember it was called Failure is Hard. Failure and that is Hard. That's a rather funny oh, name. Uh, it was actually, it was about, yeah, failing, but, you know, as a comedian, I use failure constantly to get better, right? Like, fa- mm-hmm. failing is a part of stand-up, so that's kind of what the thing was about. But I do feel that way because I'm the only genderqueer comic I know. I'm the only gender-fluid comic, um, in at least in L.A., in my circle, which is, like, crazy to me. I know there's others in New York and stuff, but no one that... I'm close enough with or anything and I think that um, I think right now there's a big wave of, of a lot of comedians that are a little more PC and specific about things which is fine because everyone's got their own style and everything but um, I'm not a PC comic and I don't always just go up and just be like you know you have to listen to me and blah 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 like I do try to create um, this bridge so that people that may have never seen somebody like me will be like oh well they were wicked funny or whatever it is you know um so in that sense i do feel a little bit of pressure because it's like what if i suck and then they're like wow that gay was terrible you know what i mean sure (laughs) like like, and then there's a lot of pressure i'm like wait hold on you know um but honestly i just kind of felt that like i mean i started I, i originally started by um you know, touring with Jeff Garcia, who's a, a Mexican comic, and his main audience is like, you know, um, Hispanic. And uh, a lot of them, I guess, I used to have like a judgment that maybe people, Hispanics, were like a little, maybe not as accepting because of, you know, um, Catholicism and stuff like that. I kind of always had this like prejudgment. And actually, after every single one of his shows, literally every show, somebody would come up and make a comment about how cool it was that they liked me. Like they, mm-hmm. and, and in a way, though, that was like my daughter came out to me recently or like oh I've never met a gay before like I've literally heard that so many times so in a weird way I was like okay like this thank you I'm putting myself out there but I think it might be worth it like because even if I do fail and I do bomb they at least are like well this person got to go out and open for Jeff Garcia who I love like Jeff likes them well then I must you know what I mean and it kind of creates even just by standing there and being yourself unapologetically whether you fail or connect with them or not you're still creating you know Visibility. You do a thing though that is stand up comedy is immediately dependent on an audience's reaction. You know how well it's going immediately. Does it, when it's not going well and when you do fail, um, were you at the beginning and are you any better now at separating? Like, do you, does in your head the, the thought go from the audience doesn't like my material to the audience doesn't like my identity? This is tough. Um, some comedians say that it's never the audience, right? right? Some comedians are very adamant about that. They're like, it's never, you never have a bad audience. Um, I disagree with that. <laughs> I think sure. some audiences could just not be feeling whatever. Um, but that is actually the toughest thing for me because, yeah, at first I was like, I know I need to get better. I know I need to do this or that. Like, I knew what to work on. But now when I have certain material that I know, you know, works, every comedian at some point you get like your solid, you know, whatever jokes that you know, no matter what those are your safety ones. And if those don't go well, then I start to, I do kind of get in my head and that actually like kind of fucks me up because I start thinking like, is it just because of how I look? Does it not matter? No matter what I say, if I say something relatable, if I say something gay, Mm -hmm. if I do crowd work and just riff, like they're not going to laugh regardless. So 
it's kind of been this tough thing. I actually experienced that when I did a show in Nevada. Um, like the second I went out, I knew the crowd didn't like me and it yeah. didn't matter what I said. And I hate to admit that because I wish I could say, no, it's just my jokes. They're shitty. But like the second, <laughs> the second I walked out, I could like see them like, just not like me. It was a cowboy convention, so that is fair. I'm sorry, a uh, cowboy convention. Yeah, and I did see Brokeback Mountain, so I knew yeah. how it was going to end. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> but they did not like me, uh, and it kind of it really did mess with me though, because it just felt like no matter what I was going to say, they just don't like me. They think like, oh, this is some snowflake, like oh, they're PC or they want me to believe you know this or that. They're not saying like, oh, I'm different than that person, but let me hear what they have to say. They're just instantly being like, no. And, yeah. But you know what? That makes you work extra harder. And then when you do get the laugh, it's like 100 times better. It's like an orgasm. It's so satisfying. You yeah. Know? yeah, for yeah. sure. For Speaking sure. of working extra harder, when we were chatting before, I said, any, is there anything you want to plug or is there any like professional news you want to share and you were like no not really oh I I am directing my first feature but I, I was like what yeah okay <laughs> tell the people yeah I'm directing I uh, just signed on to direct my first feature I'm really um, thank you yeah. thank you uh, I know I guess it doesn't really feel real so I was like not really oh yeah um <laughs> Yeah, uh, I'm really excited about it. Um, I'm from, I'm actually from the Cape Cod area, and uh, it's a movie that's based in Cape Cod in the winter, which if you've ever been to the Cape in the winter, it's the most depressing place ever. Um, and I'm so excited about it. Sorry, Julia, you live there all the time, but it is. Um, everyone else has seasonal depression except for you. Uh, I don't know how you do it, but let me know your secrets. Um, no, it's, the, the Cape, Cape Cod in the winter is actually one of the most beautiful places. Like the snow, like covering, you know, the beaches and the dunes, it's, it's gorgeous, and it's almost like a character character in itself so I'm really excited um, uh, this kid asked me to uh, direct and uh, I'm really looking forward to it it's my first time doing it there's some uh, I actually the reason I signed on is because he originally sent me the script and I'm a writer and uh, I gave him some notes I just I felt like uh, when he was using some diversity it kind of almost felt like a little offensive like they had like a lesbian character that suddenly became straight um, and that that was tough for me uh, but I, I talked with this kid and I gave him my notes and he actually came back like really receptive with this awesome script that was way more inclusive and way more open and I just thought that was so cool that he was like no I want to make this you know as diverse as possible and I want to have a queer woman director to kind of give it you know um this certain tone uh, that's that is inclusivity, and so at that point I was like, "All right, I'm in." And now we're uh, we got this film going. I'm really excited about it. That's Excellent. so cool. Yeah, yeah thank you. It seems like something that maybe should screen at the Provincetown International I Film think Festival so. someday. Uh, it's called No hoping. Consequence, though, so you guys have to look out for it in a couple okay. years if we get this thing going. Uh, yeah, <laughs> maybe at the P-Town Film Festival. Who knows? <laughs> By the way, which everybody should go to if you haven't been. We had the time of our lives. Which I've never really been did. to Provincetown at all. And Magical. all because of Julie Rocket, we got to go last Julie. summer. We're coming Julie back. Rocket. We'll be the back uh, this summer, too. <laughs> yeah. And listen to that Christine Vachon episode if you want. I was very drunk while recording. I'll, were I'll you really? I mean, yeah, we were. It was the rosé was flowing, and <laughs> yeah. uh, I was ner- It was Christine Vachon. I was nervous. And sure, of course. It was I the whispering her. angel, wasn't it? Yeah, the angels whispered uh, very loudly. Yeah, they did. <laughs> Drink us. <laughs> um, should we open it up to some cues yeah. and some A's? I want to know uh, from the BuzzFeed uh, uh, queer employees what they uh, what were like the formative um, pop culture experiences where you saw yourself for the first time. 
Was it direct? Mm. For a lot of us, it ends up being indirect. For men especially, I think. Which is a little bit yeah. why uh, big dramatic actresses do so well with the gay male community. <laughs> you know, uh-huh. Because the big emotions are channeled through you know, a big actress. Yes. Or A Nightmare on Elm Street Part 2, which was oh, yeah. one of it for me. Yeah, 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 of course. Anyone? This is a younger crowd. Yeah, it's, it's different. True. That's fine. Or just any questions for AB. Or anything, any, any recommendations? Any thoughts or feelings you want to get off your That's chest? That's a microphone? A what will they think of next? You can toss it around. Get them. Or how about this? Give it this? a toss. I'm scared Oh, here we go. Give it a toss. There it is. Well, to answer your question... Um, uh, there was one. There, there was one moment. There were a lot of times that I had no idea that I was watching something that other queer people were actually seeing and noticing at the same time. Mm-hmm. Like, for example, one of my favorite movies when I was when I was young was The Silence of the Lambs. Yeah, and I love that movie. And I was just like all these like little like things I thought was so funny and so and so outrageous and so dramatic. And then I was in. Uh, I was in San Francisco and Peaches Christ was doing a spoof on Silence of the Lambs with Sharon Needles in it. Oh, wow. And they did this whole thing where they were making all these jokes where I was just like, you were all thinking the exact same thing too. <laughs> you thought the same things were as dramatic and as funny and like all these other movies that have happened that like when I watched the first Wives Club as a kid yeah. and like Death Becomes Her. Yeah, sure. and I never watched that with any of my other friends. And so growing up now and getting older and seeing uh, like seeing that they, these were like we were all like individually kind of being raised with these like phenomenons that all kind of like bound us together. Yeah. But yeah. I didn't know it until I got older. And then right. I saw everyone being like, oh yeah, we've been laughing at this for years too. Yeah. <laughs> and it's like showing up at uh, Professor Xavier's school, right? right? Like you meet all of the other ones. But by the way, this is the first time I've ever heard anyone say Silence of the Lambs was funny. Uh, yeah. Yeah. I just <laughs> thank you for just real quick. Let's yeah, what are the I funny wonder. moments? What are what are the big laughs? I, mean, like, I, I don't know. Just like the, the the ridiculous things that like when she's sitting there at the end and she's like I remember sitting there just being like, this is silly. Yeah. And if Buffalo Bill wasn't doing what Buffalo Bill is doing, that's a pretty funny character. I mean, he's got some jokes. It's a little bit more morbid, but I I like it. Yeah. I wasn't the only queen who thought that. No, definitely not. Yeah, that's my thing. Love it. Toss it. Toss that microphone. Toss it. For me, as a gay Midwesterner growing up, or at least growing up in the closet, uh, going back and rewatching Drop Dead Gorgeous, there's a lot okay. of problematic moments, but I think the insecurities that you see come out within all the characters in the movie were echoed in a lot of things that happened in my life. Uh-huh. Yeah. Okay. Beautiful. I've actually never seen that movie. I haven't either. It came out I when I was a grown-up. It's... And also, it's not streaming anywhere, right? Uh, no, I think uh, I even think buying it on DVD now it's it's like really rare to find it on DVD. Yeah, yeah. why are they trying to keep what? it from us? Yeah, release. It is. Oh, thank God. It's like in the oh, vault, wait, like Disney. Yeah. Like, what is that vault? Is it? Oh, what? God. Repeat that, sir. Breaking news. I could be wrong. <laughs> Breaking news. Yeah, yeah, okay. As of like beginning of April, it was on Hulu. 
Okay. Oh, good. I kind of have a question for you guys. Um, okay. I, for me, first time I saw, not really saw myself, because I don't necessarily think it counts as representation, but as a like young child is watching an episode of All That, and I think as a comedic bit, one of the bands that was on, like two, two of the band members kissed, and it was something where like I ran around the house being like, did anyone see that? Did yeah. Else, <laughs> would, no one else paying attention? The two men just kissed? I don't. What's yeah. going on? Mm. Um, and then for me, um, yeah, I, I feel like for a lot of people in the room, the first time I really saw myself was not actually in a gay character on screen. What was like? Were those moments like? What were those moments for you? And like, what were your non-representative, representative media moments? I guess. Ooh, good question. Maybe. Um, that is a good question. I don't know about like non uh, I, I guess actually I guess I guess this kind of counts um, when I first saw Rocky Horror Picture Show um, that changed my world wow. like well first of all I didn't understand I was like he's just in drag and we're all dancing and everything's fine and yeah. everybody wants to have sex with him this is amazing yeah. like uh, so that but then there were so many complicated aspects to it. Like he sleeps with, you guys have seen Rocky Horror Picture Show, I'm not going to ruin this, but you know, he sleeps with Janet and then he sleeps with Brad. And I remember yeah. being like, he's now banging Brad? What? Like, that was like mind blowing to me. Yeah. I mean, of course he was a, you know, sweet transvestite from Transylvania, very sure. not PC. But uh, at the time, I remember just being baffled by that. I also, oddly, maybe this was not part of the question, but I do want to mention my first crush. Like the first time I saw like a girl on screen that I was like, maybe I'm gay. Like young um, cartoon Jessica Rabbit. That oh, wow. did yeah. it for me. I was like, that, I like that. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I mean, she surpasses all gen. All I mean, yeah, e- I even was show. like, I was like, maybe I am attracted to women because this. But no, I actually no. was at a also, bar like a couple years ago, and Kathleen Turner was sitting down at a table, and I was like, "Here we go! This is my moment!" I sat with her. I and? just wanted to hear her voice. I came three times. It was good. Sure. Uh, it was nice. She was nice. Yeah, that voice. Oh was my a good god. Voice. Um, when I was, I look back at the stuff that I read when I was a little, little kid, when I was like a pre-sexual kid, and it was all misfit kids. Uh, it was Encyclopedia Brown. Oh. Uh, it was Nancy Drew. Uh, it was kids who had like a specific skill, and it didn't get them very far with their peers, but there was like a place in the world that they could apply it and, uh, and do well. The X-Men, as I mentioned before, the New Mutants. Uh, but then when I was in high school, and this isn't even really sexual either, but um, when I, there, there was, uh, in like the years 86 and 87, um, within the same year, um, Fran Leibowitz came, uh, I, actually, I think the book had been out before, but the book Metropolitan Life, which is a collection of her essays, uh, Sandra Bernhard's uh, Broadway show, Without You, I'm Nothing, mm. uh, the first Paul Rudnick book, there were all these, um, these books that were written by like queer or queer adjacent people who were obsessed with popular culture, um, but in a way that wasn't entertainment tonight. Like it was sort of, they were like a little snarky about it. There was, it was a very queer sensibility. And it was the first time I'd ever seen anything like that. And I remember reading it and thinking, no one in my family is gonna understand anything that I'm roaring laughing at. But I also, it also like shone a light, because it all sort of came from New York, and it made me think like, I am going to New York, and I'm going to, I never got to be one of those people, but I got to be near those people. 
Matt? You're one of those people right now, Dave Holmes. I mean, come on. No, 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 no. I have so many. I don't even know. I mean, I, I, I talked about Nightmare on Elm Street 2, which was, uh, in retrospect, just straight up gay. But also... Can you just team? catch us up on yeah. the, the games? I, I've talked about this so much. But Nightmare on Elm Street 2, do you guys know it? It's... Um, yeah. You know, it's a, a sequel, and the protagonist is a male, and he is struggling with his, with his inner Freddy, and Freddy is trying to come out of his body, yeah. and he's trying to repress his freddiness, and he has a tormented relationship with his best friend, who's a very hot jock named Grady, uh, and he also has a gym coach who like goes to an S and M club and there's a shower scene where he's whipping him to death. And so, uh, it's overtly gay. And, uh, the, the star Mark Patton, I think is going to be on the podcast when he's in LA. So I'm very I'm excited so to talk to him. But actually the one I wanted to mention was teen, Witch, which is also oh. from 1989, which was like. The, you know, just uh, I, I saw myself so much in this dorky girl that did not fit in and had a crush on Brad, the hunky guy, and then had to cast a spell on him. And suddenly he's in love with her. And they have what I now realize is like a very graphic and disturbing sex scene there where they like go to like a murder house, an abandoned <laughs> house, and he and they have sex for the first time. It was very problematic, but. Um, that was uh, an eye opener for yeah. me in many ways. They also have uh, the top that rap scene, of course, which is the greatest thing of all time. Of all time, I'll post it on my Twitter tomorrow. Pardon me. Fun fact: they shot that a year later. They added that. Okay, so. Okay, good. Oh, wow. Good. Imagine that. And movie that's why without... that movie makes sense now. Uh huh. That's why you watch the it. Rewrites say, are a good thing. Yeah. <laughs> I then, old. years later, as an adult, got to play Brad, the, who was the object of my lust, as an adult in a 30 minute musical of Teen Witch. Not to brag. <laughs> <laughs> Those are real um, full circle moment. <laughs> Julie Rocket. Get in there. Oh, yeah. Ooh. With the mic. Oh. Get it. Catch Enter it. the mic. Okay. There it is. This so thing is on. So my question is for Dave. Yes. And uh, you were saying that you, in, in Midwest, sailors, that you were like, I'm going to New York. Uh-huh. How did you end up at Holy Cross before that? There was a, a, a conflict within me, for sure. Um uh, I, for those who don't know Holy Cross, I uh, for college I I decided I wanted to go in co- to college in Boston and then move to New York, so I thought Boston College, right? Uh, had I gone to Boston College, my classmates would have been Craig Finn from the Hold Steady and Amy Poehler. Um, I got in there, I got waitlisted at Holy Cross, and because um, of the way that I'm wired, I was like, you don't like me, I'm I love you. I have you not, I need to make you love me. So I worked for the summer to get myself in. Also, it seemed like one of those places where everyone was very pretty and no one seemed to have problems. You know, it was, uh, I went on the campus tour, everybody had on their brand new J. Crew barn jacket and everyone was smiling and saying hello and they had washed their face with ivory soap and it was mm-hmm. just like, it just seemed to be a very happy place and I thought, maybe if I go there, just all of this internal conflict will go away and I'll just be happy and be a lawyer. It didn't work out <laughs> at all, but I'm glad it didn't work out, you know, and it's, it's good that I, that I had to kind of defer on that kind of thing for a few years because I have no idea what kind of monster I would become if like I went someplace when I was 18 and I was totally accepted 
I'd, you know, work at a movie studio and be an asshole. You know what I mean? I don't, who needs that? The or you'd be a sharky lawyer. I'd be a sharky lawyer. A sharky closeted lawyer, channeling all of his anger into prosecuting, okay. you know, doing lawyer stuff. Yeah. 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 <laughs> that does sound sort of hot, but I'm glad that I chose another path. Yes. Pass it. Toss that mic. Pass it. It's not a toss. So it, this is a question for you, AB. Because um, I know for a fact that I don't think she's spoken about enough, and I know for a fact that you uh, admire her as much as I'm sure a lot of other people do. But um, as a strong woman on television who's been on television for coming up 21 years. Oh, my God, I know. Oh, don't even say her name. Actually, please say it. I'd love to hear uh, it. Mariska Hargitay. Oh! <laughs> <laughs> and just as a strong woman who has literally been going on for 21 years, became an executive producer of the show, and is making that sure is. that Law & Order continues... Yep. I just wanted to hear about oh, why you love her. Do we have another 20 minutes? <laughs> I can get into a long Marushka tangent. Yeah, I love Marushka Hargitay. If you guys don't know, she's Detective Benson. I mean, Lieutenant Benson, excuse me, on Law & Order SVU. Um, the longest running drama officially on TV. Here's why Marushka is so cool. And this is why I actually am so glad you brought this up. Because I would love to be a Marushka Hargitay in life. Um, first of all, let me just give you a backstory. The Marushka Hargitay is Jane Mansfield's daughter. Um, a lot of people don't know that. Um, if you guys don't don't know Jane Mansfield was like beautiful Marilyn Monroe uh, type um, actress model and she died in a really um, awful tragic car accident that Mariska was in the car actually um, and survived and Mariska Hargitay like dedicated she was in like one one movie I think she was in some like Gremlins movie some kind of thing got cast on Law & Order SVU um, from the very first pilot and has been on the show the entire time. And she's the only character that's just been on there through and through the entire, the entire uh, series, the whole run. She's actually the only woman to ever do that in TV history, to just wow. be on one show and only that. You don't see her in other movies. I mean, she's won Emmys for the show. She's won all sorts of stuff. But she had the opportunity. She's dropped dead gorgeous. She could branch out and do all sorts of movies. She's winning Emmys. And she didn't because Law & Order... Uh, SVU is about um, sexual assault victims and it's about so much more than that, that she wanted to bring light. So she ended up starting her own organization. She created a documentary that came out last year called End the Backlog about the huge backlog on um, rape cases in um, New York and Chicago and other big cities. Um, Shown at the Provincetown Film Festival. Festival. Yeah, I Am Evidence. Yeah, right. That's, is that, right. Okay. Um, And, uh, it was. I never saw it. Is it just? I've only saw clips of it, and I also saw her speak at every single thing she went to. Um, but the fact that she dedicated her life to be like, yeah, I want to act, I want to whatever. But this is important, and this matters because we're representing these unheard voices. We are representing these these rape kits that have yet to be tested, and that are sitting here and can solve crimes and can put people away and like end you know all of this stuff. And it's like she's dedicated her life to just being this voice for women. And I think it's like the most heroic, badass thing that any actress like or any actor could do is just to be on the show forever because she really, truly believes it makes a difference. Um, and she's badass. She, yeah, Mariska Harding, she, she does not get the gay icon status that she deserves. She deserves and it. She deserves I'll tell it. You that. Also, there's a drag name pun in her name already built in somehow. But yeah, there's I'm something in it. there. Yeah. Um, but she actually like throughout her involvement in the show has created so much diversity and inclusion it's like unreal like there's been episodes that like 
I remember seeing episodes of that being like, I can't even believe they're talking about it. But if you look at the old language they use compared to like the new, she writes on the show, she executive produces, and she directs um, episodes, and she makes sure that it's always inclusive. I've also heard from numerous actor friends that when they go to work on the show, she makes sure that everybody feels comfortable, they have support that's needed since it's such a difficult show to film. Um, she sits down and talks with everybody and thanks them for being here and says how important it is and how it's making a difference and like make sure that they have the, the right resources they need to comfortably portray these difficult scenes and uh she's a true hero i love her <laughs> and she's the yes. love of my life a, a round of applause for marishka Harding. let's give it up for marishka okay she's the best it's my weak spot uh that is exactly how i feel about doug savant from season one of melrose place not true not true uh, not true anyone else or should we wrap this baby up I want to end on Marishka. Let's I end on Marishka, better. obviously. Uh, what better way? You guys, thank end. you all for being here. Yeah, thank um, you for coming. Thank you, guys. Thank you Christine. Thank you, thank you, Julie Rocket. Thank you, Christine Walker. Glenn. Everybody Dana. from Provincetown. Thank you, Glenn and Tracy. Um, hopefully, we'll see you all at the Provincetown Film Festival this summer. Yeah, thank you. Let's have a kombucha. Festival. Yeah. Thanks, BuzzFeed.